Good morning, everybody. Hey, it's good to see you. I want to start out this morning, rather than uh, dig right into my message this morning, we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for the globe, the things that are going on. I know uh, most of us are, are not real. Well, we're moved. That's the nicest thing I can say. And our, we're heartbroken. Would you stand to your feet if you're at home watching us this morning, wherever you are, if you could just stand, if you have the ability to do that. And, and we want to pray for uh, our leadership. We want to pray for the Americans who are stuck in Afghanistan, for all the things that are going on. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we need your intervention, Lord God. We're at a place right now where we scratch our head and we don't even understand the uh, dynamics. We don't understand all the ins and outs, Lord, or uh, certainly don't understand the strategy. But God, we have brothers and sisters in arms. We have uh, Americans feet on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, there's chaos there. And Lord, we ask for your, your intervention, Lord God. We ask for godly uh, men and women to take the helm and, and, and take the leadership and Lord, we need your help desperately. Father, we lift up and we most certainly need to and have to and must lift up families that have been impacted by the loss of, of our uh, military personnel, loss of, of life. Lord God, I can't even comprehend. I see pictures of these men and, and women who have lost their lives in this um, horrific display. And God, I can't even imagine being a parent and seeing that. And so our hearts go out. Lord, we pray for comfort. Lord, I, I'm so grateful for our military. I'm so grateful for them, God. Lord, I pray that they would never feel like it's for naught. But God, I pray for leadership now more than ever. Lord, we need a revival in our nation. We need a revival across the globe. There's divisions, God. There's dissensions. Lord, there's lack of leadership, and Lord, we ask for your intervention right now. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Go ahead and take your seat. Thank you so much. I felt compelled to pray and to continue to pray with the events that are taking place, and um, certainly I'm sure we all would agree that we don't all know all the ins and outs, but from what we see Oh, my goodness. So we, we definitely need God's hand in all of this. I know coming in this morning, many of you cor cornered me, and, and uh, you're very frustrated. Some of the, uh, many of you have served, and uh, you just don't understand what's taking place, and, and I'm with you. I don't either. But I know God is in control, and that's hard to understand. And by the way, my message has quite a bit to do with the fact that God is in control. We're studying the book of Romans this morning. We're in chapter 9, so if you can turn there in your Bible or your smart device, Romans chapter 9, the, the message is called God is God. I wanted to put God is God and you're not. But I thought I'd be nice this morning and just leave it at God is God. God is God. And I there was a time in, in history where both men and women thought the earth was flat. I mean, that was the common 
thought and knowledge. In fact, many even stood on upon certain scriptures that they said, yes, the earth is flat. And within time, there were those who began to understand that the earth wasn't flat. And that didn't go over too well, if you read the history books. Primarily with religious people. They gave the biggest fuss about that, and, and they uh, kind of stood on certain scriptures that they stood on that they felt indicated that the earth was flat. But over the years, we've realized and we've come to the understanding that the earth is not flat, it's round, and it's what has happened over time is we can see that people have put God in a box and God can only work in a certain way, right? The earth is flat and it's got to be flat and scripture says it's flat and yet as understanding and knowledge came, we came to the understanding that the earth is not flat, it's round and, and what that did is it opened up the scriptures even more and how big God is. God is truly big and he's in control but many times we put God in a box, and he's got to fit in a certain way, and we get comfortable with that, don't we? Just like those who initially believed that the earth was flat, they were comfortable with that. That fit within their paradigm. It fit within their narrative, their understanding of God, and their understanding of the universe. And yet, when it was discovered that it's not flat, it's round, it opens up really how big God is. He's truly big, and he's in control of everything. So we pick up where we left off last week with a message that I called, Is God Unfair? A lot of people think God's unfair. And the Apostle Paul used an illustration in Romans 9, the illustration of Moses and the illustration of, of Pharaoh and how God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't say anything about... Pharaoh's heart had already been hardened and that he was connected with pagan gods, but it kind of went both ways. Pharaoh wasn't a God-seeking man, the one true God. His heart was hardened, but God hardened his heart for the purposes of God. And if you were there in the midst of all of that at that particular time, you would have probably scratched your head and wondered why. How could God use Pharaoh? But God used Pharaoh so the nation of Israel could see the majesty of God in all his miracles when he parted the Red Sea, when the people were delivered after 433 years of bondage going into the promised land. And so when we look back over history, sometimes when we're in history, which we are in history right now, we're going to be talking about this in the future, where we're living and what's going on in present day. But sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you don't understand what God's doing, but when you get in, in front of it and you look back, you can see, oh, God was moving. God's hand was in it. And, of course, the story of uh, God's deliverance to the nation of Israel, freeing them, sending them into the promised land, is a story that we've been t telling for thousands of years now. And it's a fact. It's not a fiction. It's not a story of fiction. It's a story of fact. And that's what God said. God used Pharaoh in that way that that story would be told. And it was to serve God's purposes. That's what we looked at last week in that message, Is God Unfair? Because sometimes we look at our circumstances or a situation we're in, and it's like, how could God allow that to happen? We have limited information. And we like to put 
God in, in a box. In fact, many of us, maybe some of us, think that God's just a bigger version of ourselves, and he's not. He's bigger than we are. He works outside of how we even think. We don't really understand his ways. And so Paul is communicating primarily to religious people when he writes the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and, and he's dealing with some historical tradition and things that are, are so seated in how they live life. You know, you've got a whole audience in Rome who are Gentile believers, and then you've got another audience that are Jewish believers, and they're trying to integrate their Judaism into, into the, the, the way Christianity. And so Paul is dealing and almost debating a number of questions that would come up. And so we find ourselves right now in Romans 9, 19. And it says, well then, this is Paul, he says, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? And he's anticipating this question. Remember, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And basically what they're saying is, well, Paul... You say that Pharaoh was manipulated to work out God's plan. I'm just kind of paraphrasing this. That Pharaoh's evil actually brought glory to God. How can Pharaoh be held accountable for his actions since he was used by God? Therefore, God is unfair. And that's what we addressed last week. And so here's Paul's response. It's amazing when you look at Scripture and you study Scripture, sometimes the tendency is to pick a verse and, and live by that verse, but it would do us well if we look in front of that verse and behind that verse and read things in context. And so many times when we come up with a question or we are uh, wondering why certain things are working a certain way, when, when this question is posed, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Verse 19. The answer is found in verse 20. Good thing we keep reading, right? <laughs> Romans 9, verse 20. It says, no, Paul says, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Who are you to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? Should the one that was created say to the creator, why did you make me like this? Boy, I could spin off in a lot of different directions now. Um, God created us. He knew us when we were in our mother's womb. He had a plan and purpose for you and I before the foundation of the earth. That's how big God is. We are created in God's image, the Imago Dei. Like I said, I could spin off in a lot of different things. God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make mistakes. If you feel like you're a mistake or you're not who you are and you want to identify as something else, God doesn't make mistakes. Boy, I just broke against some narratives there, didn't I? Paul says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being? I'm in verse 20 again. To argue with God. Don't put God in a box. And, and all of a sudden, when you put God in a box and then things start happening outside of that box, then you have to create a new narrative. And, and our narrative, by the way, 
Narrative is what? What we understand about culture. It, it's what we understand about life. People are creating new narratives that are completely against biblical principles now, more than ever. Our narrative's right here, how to live, how to think. God created us. And so I love what Kent Hughes, our Kent Hughes says in his commentary about this particular passage. And, and he, he puts it in a paraphrase, and he says, tiny man whose life is just a breath, whose history proves over and over that despite all his learning and technological triumphs, he repeatedly makes colossal errors. Should we talk about colossal errors? And falls into unspeakable barbarianisms. This puny man stands before the God who knows the end from the beginning, who has never learned anything because he knows everything. God doesn't need to learn anything. He knows everything. Who is the perfection of wisdom and love and, talk, and talks back to him how absurd. How, how could a man talk back to God? How could a man stipulate anything to God? God is God. And we are not. <laughs> God is God. And so in verse 21, Paul continues this point by drawing the ancient analogy of the potter and the clay. Have you ever taken that class in middle school or high school? I don't even know if they still offer that. Pottery? Remember that? I wanted to take pottery. I remember in middle school, they had a pottery class. I said, Dad, I want to take pottery. He says, you're not going to take pottery. <laughs> he wouldn't let me. I thought it'd be cool. You know, you put that big lump of clay on there and you make pots and stuff. I mean, I, that would have been great all six periods. Just sit there on the <laughs> potter's wheel, you know, making stuff. I, I was into that, but Dad wouldn't let me. But Paul uses that as an analogy, and he takes it from the prophet Jeremiah and also Isaiah. And he says in verse 21, when a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I mean, doesn't the, the, the person, the potter, making whatever he's making, he can make it some nice pot for decor for your living room for a centerpiece at your dining room table or he can make a, a, a big pot to use as a trash can to hold trash. I mean, the potter can decide whatever he wants to do with whatever he's making and does the clay ever talk back to the potter? See the reasoning here? Paul's trying to open up the logic behind these verses. Of course not. The clay never talks back. Here's the wrong question. Why are some made for dishonor? Why are some made for dishonor? When you think of Potiphar, or the Pharaoh, excuse me. When you think of Pharaoh, why are, made, why are some made for dishonor? Here, that's the wrong question. The right question is, why are some selected for honor? 
Let me word it another way. When you wake up in the morning or when you come to church or any point in any time of any day, I think it's okay to say, God, I can't believe I'm saved. That's amazing. God, I praise you. Lord, you've forgiven all of my sins. I have eternal life. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear anything. I can have faith, not fear. My life's not dictated by fear. It's dictated by faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I'm amazed that you love me so much that you've saved me. That's the right question. God, why did you select me? I mean, I love a couple of weeks ago, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but we were doing baptisms, and one of the testimonies was, if my brother can be saved, anybody can get saved. <laughs> you know, but praise God for that. Anthony, I won't point you out, brother. <laughs> but I love that. I think that was a powerful testimony. You know, that says Anthony's living out the Lord so much so that his sibling sees that. And it impacted her life. And she, give me some of that. I want that. I want my life changed. I love it. Dr. J. Barnhouse, he wrote concerning this passage, because we're in an area of Romans 8 and 9 that talks about predestination and election that God has chosen you. And, and I posed this question last week. I said, if you're saved, if, if you're born again, you have your sins forgiven, you know you have eternal life. You have that assurance. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the assurance that you know you're saved, you're born again, you know you're going to spend eternity in heaven. When somebody asks you that question, hey, do you know if you're going to go to heaven or hell? You immediately say, I'm going to heaven, I'm saved, I'm born again, I have Jesus in my heart. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And you know at that point, the issue is not, did God choose you or not? Of course he chose you, you're saved. It's not even an issue. But the question I posed last week is, are, are you saved? Do you know that you're going to heaven? If you're not, then there is a question of whether you've been chosen or not. And I encouraged you to accept Christ or rededicate your life to the Lord last week. And we had a wonderful response. There's another side of predestination, meaning that God has chosen people to be saved, certain people to be saved. There's another side of that that some of you like and some of you don't like. And it's called double predestination, which means that God has chosen some people to be saved and some people to go to hell. And there's nothing they can do about it. You're going to get saved or you're going to go to hell. And that doesn't feel right, does it? I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel right to some. I like what Barnhouse says about that. He says, Calvin, John Calvin was very guilty at this point. He says he attempted to deduce from this passage we're in this morning what has come to be called double predestination. Now, here's what Barnhouse says. The Bible nowhere announces the predestination of the lost. There's nowhere in Scripture that says God has chosen predestined X amount of people to go to hell. It would seem that Calvin and others have drawn an inference and purely human logic. They would hold that the choice of Jacob implies the reprobation, uh, reprobation of Esau. Both of these brothers were born in sin. Now listen to this. This is the point. Both of those brothers, Jacob and Esau, they were born in sin. They both had the nature of Adam, sin nature. We are, we are born in sin. They both grew up in sin. They both were children of wrath. 
They were disobedient by nature. If there had been any merit in these two sons, God would have been unjust in not rewarding that merit. So there was nothing in their goodness that merited God's grace based on their behavior, based on their works. The choice of one deserving man over another deserving man would have been favoritism. And sometimes we think that way. Why would God choose Jacob over Esau? Is he choosing favorites? When we see that the two were equally undeserving, the whole picture becomes different. Everything that is said in the entire Bible about the nature of fallen man may be said, must be said, about both Jacob and Esau. God determined, and this is the key, for causes that are to be found in himself and have not been revealed to us to show favor to Jacob. So as believers, we have to rest in this. We, so many times we try to figure out God's strategy, but it's so beyond you and I. We try to humanize God. God is not answerable to any man for what he does. However, we can rely on God, and he's consistent with his character, which is disclosed and seen in Christ Jesus. We can count on God in Christ Jesus. We should, but why should any of us question God? God is God. Can you say that? God is God. Why would we question him? In addition to that, God has purposes. He has a plan which most of the time we are incapable of seeing. It's like the prophets of the Old Testament. God gave them glimmers of, of what he was doing, and they would prophesy. They would proclaim future events, and most of them were persecuted. Amen? Well, they... they we're able to see into because God imparted to them those prophetic words. And so Paul suggests this hypothetical example in Romans chapter 9. I'm in verses 22 through 24. It says, in the same way, verse 22, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient. Thank God for that. With those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those, so now Paul's personalizing it. He's bringing his audience in, and he says, and we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. So, Sometimes we wonder why God is withholding judgment of the ungodly. Why doesn't God smite? Why doesn't God take care of business here and eradicate this evil? I know none of you ever think that way. But it may be because what his plan is, and it most likely is, so he can show his glory. He's got something going on. He's working out his purpose. And we've got to bow before God, realizing that his purposes are noble, that we can't see them many times. And so Paul calls us to realize that Israel's failure and the choices 
that it made about the Gentiles are prophesied in Scripture. See, many of the religious leaders of Paul's day who had gotten saved were upset that Gentiles, non-Jews, were not adopting Judaism. You know, the cultures, the ceremonies, the different uh, things that, that the nuances of, of Judaism that, that make you a Jew. And, and they, they wanted to put that in front of everything. Okay, accept Christ, but you need to do this this and that to really be everything that God wants you to be. And so that's the audience that, that Paul was communicating to. And he picks up this thought in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, the prophet Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. That's a prophetic word from Hosea talking about non-Jews. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So we have this prophetic word that was written thousands of years before Jesus was even on the scene about non-Jews coming to Christ. And the church, by the way, the church isn't this building it is right now because the church is here. We are the church. And so the church includes everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, whose Lord and Savior is the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? And so that's the church. And so we've had the, what amazes me is we have these prophetic words written thousands of years before Christ, about who the church is. And Isaiah cries out in verse 27 concerning Israel, though the number of, son, of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so Isaiah is saying, yeah, you know, Israel's this big, but there's only going to be a, a remnant of them who are going to be saved. And, and you know, and I know, that, that uh, many of the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They don't recognize that Jesus, the Messiah, has already come. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus came once and he's going to uh, come back to rapture up, take his church up. And I believe at that point, shortly thereafter, the Antichrist will come on the scene. Maybe many of those who are Jews will mistake this godlike figure, this anointed man, Antichrist, for the Messiah. The Bible says he's going to be doing miracles. He'll bring peace. He'll do all the things that, that you would think a Messiah is capable of doing, and they're going to be misled. Many of them will be, Jews and non-Jews alike. And Isaiah says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted in verse 27, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And he's quoting from Isaiah again and quoting from Hosea. Boy, aren't we like Sodom 
and like Gomorrah now, in the things that we've called good, we've flipped the script from what God intended. And we're calling the things that are evil good. And we've adopted so much of what is base and, and, and contrary to what God's Word says. Even many in the, in the faith who call themselves Christians have embraced demonic doctrines, which makes you wonder if they're even saved in the first place. Well, God's a God of grace. You know, He'll overlook. Yes, He is a God of grace, but He's also a God of judgment. And there's going to be a time, listen, I love to talk about the good news that God loves you. I love to talk about that. God loves you. And He's provided a way for you to be delivered from all your sin. And you don't have to live with regret. He'll, he'll forgive every sin. But listen, He'll also give you the gift of eternal life. And it's God's will that none should perish. God doesn't want anybody to perish and spend eternity without Him, apart from Him, in hell. The Bible talks very graphically of what hell is going to be like. And so, I love talking about good news. I truly do. And the reason I love talking about good news is because there's bad news. And it's really bad. But the good news is so much better and bigger. But there is bad news. And the bad news is that the devil wants to steal your life, kill you, destroy everything that you do. That's what he does. He wants to keep you in the dark. He wants to keep you distracted from the things that God has uh, laid out. The devil wants you to keep, keep you distracted, does not want you to become a child of God. The devil wants you to spend eternity with him in hell. He does not care about you. He doesn't care about your children, your family, or anything at all. He just wants to destroy and kill you, which makes the good news, amazing news, that God has power over all of that. When you become saved... You cut off the authority, the authority that the enemy has over you as far as sin and death. And we have victory over sin and death through Christ Jesus. So it's great news, the gospel. But it's only great news because there is such bad news out there. Now, in just a matter of a moment, we're going to have communion. And the Bible talks about communion. It talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Communion, or the Bible refers to it as the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul states that, and I'll just paraphrase it in Pastor Steve language, man, woman, you better be right with God before you take that cup, that bread and that juice. And that's what Paul says. He says that there are many sick and even die amongst you because you're messing around with God when it comes to the things that God calls us to do. And one of the things that God's called us to do is to take that bread and take the juice and remember to reflect of God's great sacrifice in that he sacrificed his son over 2,000 years ago to give us life, to make a way for you and I to have a relationship with God. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we have communion. It's a time where we can say, we do self-examination. Paul says that. 
Examine your heart. That's the, the phraseology that Paul uses. Examine your heart. That means go before the Lord. If there's things in your life that don't please God, go before the Lord and ask God to take those from you. Repent of those things. And then, of course, forgiveness is there. But don't do this lightly. Now, the blessing of communion is it, it kind of recalibrates us. It most certainly does. It, uh, it gets us to that place where we need to be that I mentioned earlier. God, I, I, I'm amazed that you love me, that you've saved me, and I'm so thankful for your salvation. Lord, I love you so much. It, it allows us to take just a period of time and reflect back when we heard the gospel the first time. And, and our eyes of understanding were opened. Ah, I get it now. God loves me. I get it now. He sent his son to die for me because I can't work my way to heaven. I can't be good enough to go to heaven. Jesus took on all of my sin on the cross. I don't have to work to get to heaven. The only way God's going to accept me is through his son. Jesus even said, the only way to the Father is through the Son, John 14, 6. I get it now. And then you have that acknowledgement of, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Will you forgive me of my sin? I want to be your child. I, I want to live for you. I, I'm tired of doing it my own way. I've failed time and time again. God, I need you to take the wheel as that song goes, right? And then what happens at that point is you become saved. That term born again is nothing, no term that we made up. Jesus said it in John chapter 3 when he was talking to a religious leader that understood the scriptures and sought Jesus out. Nicodemus sought Jesus out because he wanted to know what it took to go to heaven. And Jesus said, you must be born again. So here we are. We're going to have communion. The only people who can take communion are those who are Christians. Not in name, not just in name, but you are truly someone who is saved and a follower of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what I would like you to do, would you bow your heads with me? If you're at home, you can bow your head. And if you're driving, please don't bow your head and you're listening right now. But you can pray with us. I want to give you an opportunity to make things right with the Lord, to make your heart right with the Lord, to, to, to just go before the Lord. But I want, to, I want you to take a moment right now, and I don't think you need to dig deep. God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will reveal things in your life that don't please Him. And just in the quietness of your heart right now, ask the Lord, God, take this sin, take this, this bad attitude that I have. Lord, take this struggle that I have and, and, and lift it from me. Let's do that right now, and, and I'll pray. God, take the attitudes that we have that aren't right. Lord, take the sin that we're struggling with from us. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for letting you down. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for lifting the burdens that we have. And as your heads are bowed, this is the perfect time 
There's no time like right now to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time to allow Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. The Bible says when you do that, your name's written. Your name is written in God's book, the Lamb's book of life. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells us God has a book, and all those names in that book are those who are going to spend eternity in heaven. When you become born again, when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, he writes your name in that book. Would you pray this prayer? If you're not absolutely certain, without a doubt, that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven, you need to. You have to pray this prayer. I encourage you. I beseech you. Beseech means I beg you to pray this prayer for your salvation so you can receive forgiveness of sins and start a relationship, not a religion, a relationship with Jesus. Pray this prayer with me with all your heart. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. Thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. I now ask you to be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to do something sometime today. You could start now or anytime today, but I want you to text the word that you see on the screen. Text the word pray to the number you see on the screen. That's going to start a process where I can encourage you in your new faith. If you need a Bible, you need to let me know and we'll get you a Bible. But if you prayed that prayer, I want to congratulate you to the family of God. You did an amazing thing. You changed your eternal destination right then and there as you became born again. So I think we're ready for communion, don't you? So what I'm, I'm going to ask you to do is come up as the Lord leads you. Take the cup, bring it back to your seat. If you're out in the courtyard, uh, you can come up to the tables in front of you, take the cup, go back to your seat, and once everyone has gotten their cup, then I'll prompt you and we'll have communion. If you're at home watching right now, go ahead and get a cracker or whatever you can find, piece of bread uh, and a cup of juice or whatever you'd like to use for communion and just get that ready. Would you please hold the bread or cracker, whatever it is you have there, hold that up. We're going to give thanks to the Lord. Father, we thank you for sending your son to give us life. Lord, we thank you for moments like this that we can reflect back on that time when we accepted you, Jesus. We didn't understand everything about you. We still don't comprehend everything about you, but there will be a day when we will, when we stand before the Lord, we'll know all things. But for now, God, we are grateful that you chose us saved us. You've set us free from sin. You've set us free from addiction. You've set us free from despair and discouragement. God, you have given us the spirit of victory through your son, Jesus. We're so thankful. Let's partake.
It's amazing to be up here and listen to all the cups, you know. These are, for those of you who are watching online, we're using these all-in-one self-contained cups where you peel off the top and there's the wafer. And then once you're done with the wafer, you peel, the next layer reveals the juice. They're self-contained cups, but as everybody's, you know, preparing it, it sounds, it almost sounds like it's raining in here. Don't we need the, the rain of the Holy Spirit to rain over us and cleanse us? Amen. Let's hold that cup of juice up. Lord, we realize that this juice represents the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that this is not the blood of Jesus, but represents, it's symbolic of something more powerful than anything the entire universe, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sin, makes us alive, gives us resurrection power. Father, we're grateful for that. The new covenant, we're not in the old covenant anymore where it stipulates that we have to live by a set of laws to be pleasing unto the Lord, but Lord, you've set us free through your son, Jesus. Lord, we realize as we walk with your son, we want to live out the commandments in our life. It's just a natural thing that that takes place. But it's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we're saved, not based on our works. Lord, we're grateful for that. We have victory in all that we do. Through Christ Jesus, we have victory. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake. like to say amen. amen. How about a hallelujah? hallelujah? All right, let's all stand to our feet. The praise team's going to close us out. You have a great week. Keep your head up. Realize that God is in control of everything. Pray, pray, pray for his intervention in our nation across the globe. And keep following and keep walking with the Lord. Let's praise God.